Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Brett Contreras, aka The Glute Guy. He is known as the leading authority in building booties. Sounds funny, but I am dead serious. This guy knows everything there is to know about training the glutes. In fact, he invented the hip thrust, literally invented the hip thrust. So this is the guy you want to talk to if you want to build your glutes, if you want more powerful glutes, if you want stronger hamstrings, so on and so forth. This guy is all about the posterior chain. And the best part about Brett is not that he has his PhD in sports science, not that he is the author and the founder of the Glute Lab, both the gym and the book, as well as many other books, not that he is a published researcher, so he's actually in the lab doing the research and giving us the science, but that he is an experienced coach. He is a trainer still. He is in the trenches training people, and that's what he has been doing for more than a decade. So one of the coolest things about Brett in our conversation today is is that we aren't just speaking from the lab. We are speaking from experience, and, and that's what I really respect about Brett is not that he's not just that he's a researcher, but that he's also an experienced trainer because I think there's a huge difference between uh, theoretical research in practical application inside of training. Sometimes they match up perfectly, but more often than not, you need to take the research and you need to utilize it in a smart way and tweak it and manipulate it and adjust things so that it actually fits the individual you are working with. Again, becoming more practical and applicable. Um, So Brett is the guy when it comes to that stuff, and he's also the guy with all things glutes, which is what we get into today. Uh, We're going to dive into his story. We're going to talk a little bit about building better glutes and and the most important things to think about, the anatomy of the glutes. And we spent a lot of time talking about the squat versus the hip thrust, which was a recent study that came out um, it was a, a barbell squat versus a barbell hip thrust and which built bigger, better, stronger glutes. And the harsh reality is that the squat won. The squat trumped the hip thrust, but it might not be all that it seems based on the research. And Brett comes on the show today to defend his exercise, the hip thrust, and uh, kind of give us his logical reasoning as to why that study might not hold as much water as people believe, why you need to uh, take research with a grain of salt and how to actually interpret research a little bit better. So you're going to get a lot out of this from that standpoint. And then he defends the hip thrust and he tells us why the hip thrust is still the best exercise to build your glutes. Um, And at the end of the day, like I think it's very, very obvious that you shouldn't pick one exercise over the other. You should just do both. (laughs) Why not squat and hip thrust, Um, which we talk about today as well. So I'm excited about this episode. He has been somebody that uh, I've had uh, has been requested multiple times to be on the podcast. So it was great that uh, one of our mutual friends connected us and we were able to make this happen for you. So grab a pen, grab a pad, get ready to change your programming and build your glutes to a whole new level. Before we do jump into the show, guys, remember that you can help me grow the show and spread this message by sharing it on your story. We want to see who you are, who's listening to the show, what you got out of it, and we want to share it on our story as well. So do me a huge favor. Take a screenshot of your phone right now, head over to Instagram, post it on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom, and make sure you tag Brett. 
at Brett Contreras one. That is the number one Brett with one T. All right, guys. Once again, thank you for listening to the show. I'm super excited for you to hear this one. Tag us on Instagram. Enjoy the show. Make sure you apply this to your training. And without any further ado, here is the interview with the one and only, the glute guy, Brett Contreras. All right, this one is long overdue, as we were just talking about before I started recording. Um, we have tried to get you on the in the past. I'm excited that we had some mutual friends, and I was able to get you here today. Um, somebody that has been requested to be on the show multiple times and is literally the master of the glutes. So I'm excited to dive into this for a few reasons. Number one, just really respect uh, who you are and what you do and, and the level of value you provide inside your content. Um, as an evidence-based practitioner. So I'm really just excited to have you on just, just selfishly. Um, but also because like when I first started training people and I started actually doing it, going through my internship, we worked with a lot of athletes and glutes and hamstrings were just the posterior chain in general was the biggest focus. And it was constantly getting beaten in my head of how much we had to train the posterior chain and how much glute work we did. And I remember being an 18 year old trainer, getting into it, thinking like, I just wanted to get big quads and biceps. And I was so confused as to why we were doing so much glutes and hamstrings. Um, but I later found out there's so much benefit to that inside of posture and performance and strength and so on and so forth. So I'm really excited for you to be able to explain some of that since you are literally the glute guy. Um, but before we do get into the glutes, um, how'd you go from where you were as a teacher into where you are today? Like kind of give us your story in a nutshell. Um, I know you've told this story many times, but it's really interesting how you went from that career to being literally the most well-known glute trainer expert in the world, arguably. And I mean, you've had some pretty crazy transformations. Um, so I'm excited to dive into your story. <laughs> it's what I hope I'm the most popular in the world. That's like a small subset of trainers, the glute experts. <laughs> I feel like I started the niche, you know, like, I was kind of the first and only glute expert. I mean, there were like people who knew a lot about the glutes, but they weren't crazy about it like I was, like took it to a whole new level. And now there's a bunch of them. Yeah. And uh, I like to think that I started off this niche. But uh, anyway, the funniest thing about this, this person who really influenced my life, I tried to find her. I, you know, next time I'm visiting Phoenix, I need to go to Scottsdale Community College and like ask them, like, I need to find this person. But it was a professor during my master's degree. So I was a, a high school math teacher getting my master's degree. And I, I, I had a, 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 you know, I was in curriculum instruction. And my professor said to me, Brett, you need to go into this. Like you, you need to be in exercise science. I've been teaching for 13 years as a professor. I've never received a project like yours. You clearly went so above and beyond. This is your life's passion. You're probably a great math teacher, but life's too short to waste. You got to do what you love doing. And this is your calling. Uh, I can set you up with, you know, like colleagues at SCC at Scottsdale Community College to, um, try to become an exercise science professor, but you need to, you know, make your way to fitness. And then at that point I was teaching, you know, I had a lot of students like male athlete students that I thought would love to join me. So I thought, what if I open up my own gym? I bet it would, all the, all the kids from the school would want to train with me. And it didn't turn out that way. It started off like all these women in my life, my family, my friends, they'd say, Oh my God, I want to train with you. And I'd say, well, kind of have a bunch of like powerlifting and like athletic training equipment you know like i bought i spent i remember i saved up 13 or fifteen thousand dollars on a teacher's salary which is pretty good you know especially in arizona mm -hmm. and i used that to buy a bunch of equipment so i had this badass garage gym okay it was like a giant power rack and platform with all the bells and whistles 
a competition bench press, dumbbell set, a reverse hyper, a glute ham developer, an, a sumo base 45 degree hyper, a prowler, a bunch of specialty bars, and, and that was about it, you know? And uh, all these women were like, oh, I love training like an athlete. I, I love training that way. Let, let's do it. So they, you know, so just so happened that I got like my first, you know, like five clients were women and they told their friends and then I had 10 and then I opened, and then, and then I finally opened up a gym when I had 10 paying clients paying me 300 bucks a month. I figured, well, that, that will cover the lease. So I opened <laughs> up a gym in Scottsdale having no money saved up. So I had to get clients rapidly. So I, I started up a gym in, in Scottsdale called Lifts. Uh, and it was, it was in Ganey Ranch, a nice area. And within three months, I had like 55 clients. And I was, I remember, I think I made six or seven grand profit the third month. And I'm like, man, I'm on my, I'm on my way to six figures. I'm going to kill it. People were asking me, can we franchise this place? I'm like thinking I'm going to franchise it. And then the economy collapsed. That's the housing market crash of like 2007 and eight and it was terrible. If you were a business owner in that time, times were tough. And I had to get crafty because all the gyms in my, you know, all sorry, all the shops in my plaza went under. And like I was the last, one of the last two left. And then all of a sudden I just, the whole, like everything fell through. So at that point I'm like, what can I do to further my career? You know, like what can I be doing right now? So I thought, well, I'll turn to blogging and social media. And that's what I ended up doing. So no matter what your situation, you can always be working on your career, whether you're making money or not. You can be learning. You can be putting out content. You can be making connections. And that's what I did. The first few years of blogging, I wasn't concerned about making money. I just wanted to get my methods out there and start spreading my my word and my message and, and build up popularity and, and meet colleagues, you know? So that was, I didn't care about the money at first. And that I think that paid off. Cause I blogged for like probably an average of four times a week for like eight years, you know, mm -hmm. people don't see that now they see this the Instagram success. They don't realize how much I read, how much I, you know, all, all the stuff I did to lay the foundation, you know, that graphic, it's like, here's what you see with success. Here's what you don't see. And it's like the iceberg underneath an iceberg that there's like, you know, 80, 90% of the mass is underneath the water that you don't see. Yeah. Um, I think that's actually a very like, common thing of, uh, amongst successful coaches, trainers, and business owners in the industry is like, there's a lot of behind the scenes work that people just completely forget about. Um, and I can even relate to that because everything for me started as a blog. I was just a trainer and I was just blogging my journey. And that blog grew over six years before it became an online business. And now I have a team of coaches, but same thing as you, I just wanted to read, learn, and teach. I was like, let me learn and then let me express it in a blog and because there wasn't social media back then but um i think it's so important for for young trainers hearing to like actually be able to spend time doing that without seeing the the bright lights so to speak you know what was nice about being a teacher is i i i made such little money i got used to living off nothing and so you know, i remember when i was making you know like my six-year teacher i was making thirty-six thousand a year and it was like that was more than i could spend back then so i saved and so I've kind of always been like that. Even now when I'm making a lot of money, I still am frugal. I still save a ton. And, and it makes you feel secure because it's like, look, if the shit goes down and Instagram changes their algorithms and the real estate market goes to crap and, you know, something happens, well, what do I need to survive off of? Six yeah. figures? That's, I could make that in my sleep now, you know? Yeah, 
hundred percent agree. Um, I love that, man. Uh, so, so as we kind of shift gears, by, into- by the way, not to interrupt you, a lot of the influencers I see do the opposite. It's like they start making money and all of a sudden they're showing off their cars and they're just living in perpetual travel mode, which is fine for them. Cause that's your prerogative. However, the hell you want to spend your money. I just think it, it's, uh, you know, we got to learn from the example set by these athletes and stuff. It's like, yeah, some of them going bankrupt and they made $50 million. And it's like, what you have is what you make minus what you spend. Well, I think, I think that's the difference between like somebody like yourself. I wouldn't, I think people see the number of followers you have and maybe consider you an influencer. But when I see you, I think of like a coach and a interpreter of science, right? It's not really an influencer. You've just had an influence on people. So the following grew. And I think that's the biggest difference. That's funny you say that because like I had someone ask me that once, are you an influencer? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm an influencer. Like I meet the, like, what are the criteria? You know? <laughs> Yeah. I think I'm influential. So yeah, I'm an influencer, but it's just have a negative stigma to it, you know? Yeah. hundred um, percent. So, so as you started getting more and more into this, like why the obvious question, why glutes? Why, what made you shift from just training um, af- like people at, with an athletic approach and, and using, I'm sure back then some of the, the pieces of equipment that you mentioned weren't as popular in that realm and i think a lot of trainers i remember getting out of school and being like i'm just going to train soccer players like that's all i'm going to do and then i realized that college soccer players didn't have money and i just trained a bunch of moms and like but i had a lot of the similar every every personal trainer i'm going to train just athletes and then you realize it's like the overweight and the the older popular and the stay-at-home moms they're the ones with the money and (laughs) you know so what shifted gears to get all all about the glutes well you know it stems from the fact that i had none growing up (laughs) And I don't think people can relate if they've had, I get so many emails, it's crazy. I went to a LA Fit Expo a couple of weeks ago and I had a booth there and I had such a you know long line of people visiting me and they're like, you're my hero or like you changed my life. And I'm like, really, I'm your hero, not some like Barack Obama type person, but just like me. And they're like, yeah, by the way, I don't care about politics. So I don't even know. Like, <laughs> most people think is admirable but anyway like you know these people are like you changed my life and i can't thank you enough but i can relate because i know what it felt like to have zero butt like a negative butt you know i had nothing there my back went right into my legs and so i remember being 16 years old and being like i'm not okay with this i don't like that i have no butt and I want to fix it. And I mean, hell, that was 27 years ago. I remember just trying to learn back then because we didn't have the internet, you know, like I had to learn through magazines. The sad things about that is I had to read the bodybuilding magazines and bodybuilders don't train glutes. They like, they train legs. It's funny. They train traps. Like you think of every muscle, traps, delts, pecs, lats, biceps, triceps, you know, you know, quads, hamstrings, calves, abs. But then there's like some muscles that you just don't really talk about, like the forearm muscles. They don't say I train forearms. Those just get worked when you train like back and thing and do dumbbell work and stuff. And glutes were like that. It was like, well, look, you don't have to train glutes. They get worked when you do your squats and your deadlifts. And for some people, but also back then, they actually didn't want big glutes. That was like, you didn't want overdeveloped glutes. Vince Gironda was one of the guys who was like, don't even do squats, do like, like hack squats so your glutes don't get don't overpower your body 
so you look at all the older bodybuilders and most of them didn't have like arnold didn't have huge glutes you know but the, the women wanted glutes they've made this whole glute thing popular you know women wanted nicer butts and so i kind of like had to learn through lots of ways like because bodybuilders didn't give me many ideas so i had books and things like that and you know Jane Fonda type stuff. And it was like, I wanted to do the glute bridges and the, the floor exercise, the supine, the quadruped work. I wasn't afraid of that. Problem was, you had to do such high reps with that stuff. And back then we didn't think high reps built any muscle. Thought you had to go super, super heavy. So every exercise I looked at, if it was like a body weight movement, I was like, well, how could I load this? And I think that's what helped me figure out the hip thrust. It was like 2006, I'm watching UFC fights and I'm like, man, we need an exercise to help strengthen like a mount escape you know it's going to be like a glute bridge but with weight it's not much range of motion how can we increase the range well let's put our shoulders up on a bench and so when i invented the hip thrust i made a machine for it called the scorcher that was in my first gym lifts but that's what really led to me being like this glute specialist it was like when i had lifts all these people were like he has a special machine and they come in and that's the first thing they'd use. Like everyone start off on the scorcher and then did everything else. And so they'd, they loved it. And so that was like, I'd be in my gym and all of a sudden someone would run to the cubby, get out their phone, call a person. And that person would show up like 15 minutes later. It'd be like, you know, the mom or something calling the daughter and the daughter would show up and be like, okay, I've heard, I heard this is an awesome glute workout. Can I join too? And I remember one of my clients, Leslie, like 13 of my clients were from her. <laughs> like she referred 13 different clients. She was like a very, very popular person. So it just kind of happened that way. But one thing that my clients were always saying to me was Brett, why don't you share your methods? Like, why don't you write? You, why aren't you speaking for the news stations? You're the best out here in Arizona, but you don't get out there. And I'm like, how do these people have time to get out there? I'm so busy. You know, I, I'm, I'm exhausted. I train everyone. I train people for seven hours. Then I lift, then I wrote the programs for one to two hours. And then I lifted weights. By that time, I'm tired. I go home, make some food, barbecue, and I'm done. You know, so when the housing market collapsed and I said, I'll reinvent myself. Well, that's when I had some time to write and work on putting my methods all together. And that really helped me you know, I wrote an ebook and kind of tried to explain my methods. And then I just started up YouTube, a blog, Facebook, Twitter. And it's kind of funny. That's what we did for so long. It was like, for how many years was it? Like from 2009 until probably like 2016 for probably seven years, like you did the same pattern. You filmed a YouTube video, you embedded that into your blog, you wrote the blog, you had a thumbnail, you posted it to, you know, you published it, you put the link on Facebook, you put the link on Twitter, you wrote a newsletter out and you said, Hey, click, see my new article. And then that was it. It was the same daily process over and over. And now I don't do any of that. I kind of quit Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and I quit blogging. And I think I was the first guy to stop blogging just because I was pissed at Facebook. You know, I'm like, man, it used to be fun. I'd get, you know, like 2000 likes and 500 shares on an awesome article. And now I'm getting 330 likes and 30 shares unless you pay. And I was too proud to pay. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm a scientist. I'm not paying. I just was like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. I don't want to support Facebook anymore because I worked so hard building up my, my crowd. They never told me they're going to change the algorithms. And, you know, I felt betrayed a little bit. And it annoyed me too, because I had power. 
I had power as a scientist and now it's like you cut off my limbs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I could write an article refuting something. And if you don't have any algorithms, it will spread. The stuff I write will be shared by people. And now it's not. Yeah. So at that time, my brother was telling me, you know, about Instagram. And I'm like, nah, it looks to me kind of like a Snapchat type thing where you just post pictures and you can't link. And I just, no, I'm a businessman. I don't, why would I join Instagram? And he's like, just trust me, Brett. It's the wave of the future. And I'm like, how is it the wave of the future? He's like, just trust me, just get on Instagram. And I'm like, but you can't link. He's like, I don't care. Just do what I say. And thank God I did because I just started, you know, you can, you can look, you can go all the way back and look at the evolution of my Instagram. It's gotten so much better. It used to just be posting like memes and my food and my, my workout. And then it's just evolved to where now I try and take it very seriously and post educational stuff. And, and uh, it's cool because I've heard marketers that are like, just because you have a big following doesn't make good money, which is true. But they'll say Instagram followers don't, doesn't equal like has nothing to do with your income. And I'm like, how would they know? Yeah. How would they know they don't have big following? <laughs> like my income has been directly related to my Instagram, yeah. so, like exactly proportional, you know? Yeah. And uh, I can put some out to my newsletter. And, you know, I have like 130,000 followers on my newsletter, I think subscribers and say I launch something, I'm, I'll make X amount of money. Then I put that out on my Instagram and my story. And it brings in six times that amount, you know, yeah. and so it's been my Instagram, Instagram has been great for my career. Yeah. It's also been great for the popularity of the hip thrust because see back when Facebook was all, all the, was all, you know, it was like Facebook and Twitter. You had all these coaches that hated the hip thrust and they were like, that's stupid. Just squat. Well then <laughs> on Instagram, the women got so much more popular. Do I remember, do you remember first joining Instagram and you're like, how does this person have like 200,000 followers already? It's intimidating, you know? Yeah. Cool. I've got 200. How am I ever going to get to 200,000, you know? Mm. And they would post, they would, you know, they, they would basically post like a hip thrust and like a man would come on and be like, that exercise doesn't work. It's don't do it. And then the woman would reply and write, actually, it does work. I feel it more than any other glute exercise. Thank you. And then it would get all these likes, her comment, and everyone would shut down that guy. And the guys just realized we can't, you know, the girls were like, you know, we're not going to let the guys lie here, you know? And so you know, little by little, every one of the women on uh, on Instagram were doing hip thrusts and it just became, it went from something like big in some circles to something global. It's funny, man. I think uh, it's actually been cool because I remember actually when you first got on Instagram, because I remember reading a hip thrust article on T Nation, like year, I believe it was T Nation, like years ago by you. And at the gym I was interning at, we had a hip thrust machine and uh, it was the first time I was introduced to it. And then I started reading your articles and stuff and I watched it, you grow and do your thing on Instagram and, and to see that evolution has just been insane. Um, but so cool. And, and it's, it's, it's funny because I want to ask you uh, about hip thrust versus squat. So it's funny that you bring up those comments, those suggestions. And my whole, and I haven't dug into that study at all. So I actually don't even know. I know basically, I saw Menno post something and I saw like what he said, like squats are better, but I didn't read any of it. So I don't have a ton of information on it. But I think it's funny because like you said, all these people are saying, oh, squats are better, squats are better. But why is it that you have so much evidence behind all these people making insane transformations from adding the hip thrust. It's like they were squatting, but now they're squatting and hip thrusting, or now they're just predominantly squat, uh, hip thrusting. And I'd also like, in my experience, when I get a woman that wants to build her glutes, I can do more hip thrusting throughout the week than I can squatting, uh, just from like a systemic fatigue standpoint, and just making sure they're not just getting smashed every week from a recovery standpoint. Um, but I just want to hear your thoughts on like the squat versus 
hit thrust and like that study and, and everything like that if you can okay so what's cool is that like by the time this podcast is posted because we are recording this on what day is today february 11th okay so let's say this comes out in two weeks and it's what tuesday the what would it be the 25th okay say this podcast comes out on the 25th this was recorded on the 11th i anticipate some stuff going down in between this time okay so basically the authors have some serious explaining to do now I wrote a response in my buddy Alan Aragon's research review. And uh, Cody, if you email me, I can send you that. It's a it's a good response. And I, I plan on putting on my blog a couple of days later, but there's more to the story. And there's all this weird stuff about their data. Okay, so um, they've got some serious explaining to do, but basically it's not just... Uh, Here's what's crazy. The lead author's name is Barbalo, Mateus Barbalo, right? And I've never done this in my whole life. Like, I'm, I'm not like this, uh, I mean, even like as a peer reviewer, I, you know, I have my PhD, but I, I like evidence. I like, if it's a good, if it's like a study that had used good methods, I want it to be published, even if I don't agree with their conclusions or something. Like, I'll tell them like, be more cautious with your conclusions. But if they carried out a study, uh, you know, I'm not like this hardcore peer reviewer. I'm not this hardcore critic of research. But uh, I read one of their past studies on volume. On It was one of their first volume papers. And I have never done this right away. And I, I'm not like some overly suspicious person. But I looked at the chart and I printed it out and I looked at the chart for about 15 minutes and I'm like looking at it and I'm analyzing and I'm analyzing and all of a sudden I go, this is fake. This is not real. No study that I've published. No, I've been, been involved with like 50 studies, right? Like nothing I've ever done works out like this. It's never this neat and this clean and this perfect. Mm. So I called up my friends and I'm like, this study's fake. Look at it. It never ends up like this. But how do you show that statistic? Like, how do you? So anyway, I'm like, we, we have to be able to show this. Now, this is like a year ago, right? And then the next study they released was even prettier. And I'm like, I just, I, I, I had this running joke with my friends that the Barbalo research, and I'm like, oh yeah, Barbalo research as if it's real, okay? And then, so what do you think when I see this study being published by Barbalo and Paulo Gentile. Now, Paulo Gentile is like a Brazilian. He reminds me of Charles Poliquin, but with Brazil. He likes to make these bold claims, but he also just bashes the hip thrust constantly. And he's always making like videos making but that mock the hip thrust. And it'll be like like James Harrison does a set of hip thrusts, and then there's this like Spider-Man being pushed in a shopping cart down the aisle, and he's make he's just staring at you doing a humping motion. And then it'll show someone else doing a set, and then it switches back to that, and then there's some funny music playing and at the end of it there's always this dog with like like bulged out eyes that's like looking all shocked and then that's that's like their humor okay so um why is a professor doing stuff like that and he's bashing the hypnosis he's saying it does nothing it does nothing and here's what you what's what's so funny is what you mentioned so this is my problem with scientists you'll, you'll talk to scientists about, well, where's your evidence okay what you just mentioned how do you have all these 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 before and after pictures all this evidence at what point does the evidence become like this is actually the best form of evidence let's talk to the hundreds of thousands of women that are doing hip thrusts and say what'd you get better results from when you squatted or when you start hip thrusting like 90 percent of them will say when i start hip thrusting my glutes blew up 
and look at these glutes, look at this before and after. And I, since this study got published, I'm having all these women. And the women, what I realized was the average woman knows more than the top male expert on glutes. I mean, think about it. Why would the men know anything about glute training? They typically just do like squats and deadlifts, maybe some lunges for their quad. They're not obsessed with glute training. They're not, they're not in one study showed that women do 41 sets of hip thrust, uh, sorry, glutes on average per week, whereas men do 12 on average. <laughs> And the women know glute training so much more. So these women were like scrutinizing the study and they're like, something's wrong here. Like, why were the women squatting 205, but only hip thrusting 220? Like, what? That doesn't look right. And, and, and if so, they were untrained in the hip thrust. Why did they only gain 40 pounds on the hip thrust and they gained 75 pounds on the squat? Like these women went in 12 weeks training just one one day a week with six sets on a shitty weird periodization protocol and gained 75 pounds on their squats went from like 205 to 280 in 12 weeks so they went from like novice powerlifters to like elite elite powerlifters in 12 weeks training the squat one day a week and just doing six sets no accessory work no assistance lifts like no power like all the powerlifters would coaches like actual powerlifting coaches would say you never take a woman from an average of 205 to 280 in 12 weeks with that protocol you don't even do that with the best protocol yeah it's not 12 weeks even if you train twice a week with like a great protocol so then i was looking at their other papers and i found one where all right so cody what what do you what could you bench press for 10 reps right now probably 225 215 somewhere in there okay so Say 225 for 10, okay? And, and what do you weigh? Uh, 170. 170, okay. So let's say you weigh 180 just to make it easy, okay? So these guys were benching 1.2 times their body weight, all right, for 10 reps. And then in 12 weeks from doing five pressing sets a week. So picture this, you only train pressing one day a week. And then the remaining six days, no pressing exercises. And you do five sets. You do two sets of bench press, two sets of incline press, and one set of military press for 12 weeks. Do you think you'd get weaker or maintain or get stronger? At best, maintain. <laughs> right. At I'm best, lucky. maintain, right? Not these guys. These guys went from benching 1.2 times body weight to 1.5 times body weight off that protocol. So they basically, they, they weighed an average of like uh, 180 and they put like 50 pounds or something. Anyway, it was like, it was like 60 pounds on their bench or something crazy like that. So um, they put a third of their body weight on their bench. So you, you weighed 170. We said, let's say you weigh 180. So that's like you basically putting 60 pounds on your 10 rep max. So if it's 225, now you're benching 285 for 10. Do you think you'll ever bench 285 for 10 in your entire lifetime i hate to say it but no <laughs> no like in my case i weigh i weigh 240 245 240 the most i've ever bench pressed for 10 reps is 275 okay so a third of my body weight is 80 pounds 275 plus 80 is 355 i've done 355 one time for a single which i can't do it right now i could probably get 340 or 345 but anyway there's no way in hell i could do that 10 reps my entire lifetime and i'm sure you're hitting i, I know i am i'm pressing twice a week on a periodized press- plan you look at their protocol and three of the 12 weeks is sets of 12 to 15 reps with 30 to 60 seconds rest in between sets like six sets with what would okay so i had my my niece do that protocol with squats she can squat 195 pounds okay so first set she used it's got to be a two up two down pro tempo you know non-stop to actual failure meaning like you have to in their definition you have to fail you can't you actually have to fail, okay? 
So when she does squats, I have to, uh, I have to curl the bar up, put it back on the rack and then change the weights out in 30 to 60 seconds. So she, she, do is, she did her first set with 115 and did like 14 reps, okay? Failed. I got to re-rack it, change the weights. I dropped down to 95 pounds. She got like 10, okay? Then I moved it down to 65 pounds. She got like 12. Then she's just like dead. She's at this point, she's ab absolutely dead. So I dropped it down to 45 pounds for last three sets. She got 12, 10, 8. So her last set was 45 pounds for eight reps. This is like, I mean, if you understand strength training, this is like an endurance protocol. Yeah. It's not a strength building protocol. So with this crummy protocol, they built, they put these women powerlifters went to elite status and the men went from to masters in, in powerlifting from a crummy, weird protocol. It just, it would never happen. If you took girls who were used to training their glutes, you know, with all this volume and went to, to giving them just six sets a week of squats, their glutes would shrink because they're training their glutes three times a week mm -hmm. but not in this study in this study they're the squat like led to crazy glute gains like you know like nine percent bigger glutes and the hip thrust only three percent and there were you know quad gains but also mm -hmm. so i plotted out all the different studies and i showed that uh, there's like seven studies okay barbalo's group uh had the lowest absolute hip thrust strength gains out of all seven studies so far and above the highest squat gains out of all the seven studies, the lowest transfer from hip thrust to squats. It was just, I mean, it's just silly. It's just, and, and everyone who actually trains people, like all the coach, all the lifters out there and all the trainers will just look at this and go, it's, there's no way, there's no way. But then we start looking at, first of all, like the protocol itself. They had five, one, one supervisor for every five lifters. Well, they're going to failure. You have to re-rack the, you have to spot the, first of all, how are you going to make sure they use proper depth and lockout and proper form? It has to be one-to-one. -one. You know, you have to be there to say, make sure they're going deep enough, make sure their form doesn't run. And then when they fail, especially some of their studies use leg press. You have to fail in the leg press. That means you can't get it up. It comes back down. You've got to like push the whole weight stack back up. So According to the what they described in the methods, there's no way that the they could have even done the, the the methods as they proposed. And so they need to explain all of this, but there's gonna be a lot more because more people are looking at their research and just going, uh, eh, this does not add up. So basically, like we can talk about the study as if it ever even took place, but it's likely, I mean, unless the unless the authors can explain this. But they need to explain how did you get these? How does it not match up? How did you get these? But they need to explain every study they've done. Because the other thing is that this lab is too prolific to be taken seriously. They, this Barbalos published 11 studies in two, two years, 11 training studies in two years. No one can get that done. It's like, what lab are you using? Yeah. Where, are you, where are you publishing this? There's no transparency. It's like, where is this secret place you're training these people at? And where, who are all these coaches? And what, what is going on? You need to explain all this stuff. And my guess is that I don't even know what's going to happen. You know, I, I'll challenge them to debate. I guarantee you they'll never debate me because I'd make fools out of them. I mean, I'll, I would love to debate Gentile. I'd love to debate Barbalo. But they've got some serious explaining to do about not just this study, but all of their studies now. And what I hope is that all the people who share this study, it's like if you care about your followers, you put out false information you need to correct it. You need to tell all those people, wow, you know, and hopefully this, these papers get retracted and, but it's like, it did a lot of damage for the hip thrust. It's like all these people were like, LOL, I knew it didn't work. And all the people who do it are like, there's no way. You know, the people yeah. who, all my colleagues who, like you said, are obsessed with glute training, 
they're like, there's no way. So anyway, there's problems with the protocol. There's problems with the methods. There's problems with the data. There's problems with the stats. And you can look at these, the, the, the data and just like, if you know about studies, you can look about how it's presented with everything being so nice and neat. And you can just go, no, that, that's not the way sports science research works. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's, that's one of the things I appreciate about researchers like you is that you are a coach and you've been a coach for so long that you have that side of evidence too, the experience, the anecdotal evidence of like thousands and thousands of people that you've actually worked with or talked to or have used your programs. Um, and I think that not enough people put merit into that, especially with the evidence-based community growing and growing. I think people are grabbing onto that and thinking that if it hasn't been done by research study, then it doesn't. Um, but there's so much value inside of experience of coaching. Oh, it's so true. And it's, that's my biggest asset. You know, as a, as a, as a PhD researcher, my greatest strength is is like if I peer review or if I'm involved in studies, it's like, I know what's impressive. I know what's reasonable. I know what's like, I could look at this study and go, that is absolutely impossible. That would never happen. And like this Barbalo guy, like who, who is he? Are you certified? Are you, are you an awesome lifter yourself? Are you like a, a world renowned power lifter? Are you certified? Like, how are you getting these results? Who are your coaches? Like, are, who are the ex? Like, we need to know <laughs> you like Louis Simmons would probably laugh at these results. Yeah. You know, he'd be like, what? That can't happen. And, and you know, the only way that could happen if they, they were taking steroids or something. Or But uh, then, then you'd have to explain, well, 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 why this group see such great strength gains? Like, you'll never see someone gain more strength on squats than, than the other group does on hip thrusts. Like, the hip thrust group gains better, gains more strength, always. And in this study... The hip thrust group gained 40 pounds. The squat group gained 75 pounds of strength. It just, it doesn't add up. I don't know. I mean, it's, they've got some explaining to do. Here's, here's what I can think of. Like, if you wanted to like say, uh, Cody, that you just crossed, crossed over over to the dark side and you're like i don't even care at this point like i'm just i want people to believe a certain thing and i'm willing to take whatever means necessary if that means fabricating data well you could either you could either make up the data never even conduct the study and make it all up okay but in this scenario you really need in order to fool the coaches and also fool the peer reviewers into getting it published then you know you need to know a little bit about strength training you need to know what's realistic another one of their papers showed that they have people their their max bench press is stronger than their max leg press how, how could that ever be how could any, any group of men ever leg press more than they sorry bench press more than they can leg press like there's no way in hell ever no. so they like I feel like they don't even know enough like about strength training to fudge the data, like to, to try to lie about it and make it realistic. Um, uh, uh, and you have to know a lot about stats to like make sure that the, you know, here's another huge problem. Their effects, their, sorry, their, their standard deviations are so low, which make their effect sizes high. It's like in one study, I think there's, they have like two kilogram standard deviations for bench press. So a group of dudes only varied in bench press strength by four, like, you know, like four pounds. Like, you know, if you have a group of 10 people, you're going to vary probably 50 pounds in bench press strength. Easily. It's like, you know, Easily. At least 20 kgs or more. It's just, it's, I mean, when you take everything, but my colleagues are way smarter than me about like stats and stuff like that. Like I said, my strength is in, I spent my life in a gym mm -hmm. with clients, you know, their strength is they know the, so I'm hoping that other researchers come, come forward and 
call them out. And then we, we need to hold them accountable. It's like, like if it's found out to be that they lied about the research or fabricated it. Um, by, by the way, I said three scenarios. The first scenario is you just make it up. You never even conduct the study. The second scenario, you conduct the study and then you just fab, you just fudge the data. It didn't come out the way you want. You just, you just take a bread pen and write over it. You know, the third is that you purposely, like you try to get the results you want by being like, okay, guys, here's how you do a hip thrust. You know, instead of using like a 14 inch bench, we're going to use a 20 inch tall bench. You hinge from your neck, you know, <laughs> put your neck against the bench, arch your back as hard as you can, <laughs> get into massive spine extension and just move through this tiny hip range of motion or something. You know what I mean? Right. Like we don't know. There was no pictures of, and this, there's no transparency with this group. Any one of my colleagues, if you were like, you know, hey, we want to know, you know, we, we have questions. We want answers. They'd answer them. They'd, they'd send back, okay, here, here's my lab. Here's a picture of it. Here's, here's a video clip I took of my subjects. Uh, here, you know, you have confidentiality with subjects, but they post stuff all the, all the time. Like, you know, here's my subject posting something to Instagram. Like, here's the way we did it. Here's how we tested it. Yeah. Anything else you want to know with this group? We'll see. I'm curious to see how they respond to all this and what they, if they try, if they come clean or if they try to cover it up or if they divulge what happened or, I mean, we, we've got a lot of, they've got a lot of explaining to do basically, but I'm, I can say with like 100% confidence that the, their studies are not legit and the whole group needs to be like questioned and you know we need to get to the bottom of it and i'm hoping brazilians will get to the bottom of it i'm hoping the brazilians will you know like flood the university flood these guys' inboxes and dm and message them and say we, we're not letting you get away with this you don't get to lie you don't get to make up data you need to explain this and if the answers aren't sufficient then hopefully they you know get banned or like fired from the university and they're they never get taken seriously as researchers again because it's not okay to fabricate stuff. That's right. just does such a bad disservice to research in general. Because Cody, I can't tell you how many people I talk to and they're like, they already don't believe research. And it frustrates me because I always want people to care about research. And they're like, oh, well, research doesn't mean anything. You know, you can get, you can say whatever you want, or you can get the data to say whatever it wants, or you can just lie about anything. You can say anything. And it's like, most researchers are good. And I'm not saying all research is good, but like it hones in on the truth over time. So I'm looking to fund a duplicate study, but they used ultrasound. I don't trust ultrasound for glutes that much. I, I, I used it myself for a long time. I mean, I spent 13 grand on ultrasound unit, used it on a one twin case study for my PhD and never used it again. I still have it. It's... <laughs> You have to press down at the exact trajectory, the exact pressure, and you've got to gain experience with it. Well, I practiced a lot. There was one subject I couldn't see the fascia border. Like with, with like hamstring, you see a bone, but glutes, you don't see a bone. You, it's fascia and it's on some people it comes up real easily on other people it doesn't so I'd like to see MRI the problem is MRI is really expensive anyway we've ran, rambled about this study long enough but you, that's my take on it I don't don't put any stock into it and do both of them obviously anyone with a brain would say do both 
Yeah, hundred percent. I'd love to hear for the people that don't understand mechanics and things like that. I'd love to hear like why you actually favor the the hip thrust when it comes to volume. Because I think for for some people, I mean, to me, it's it's very obvious. Like with a squat, your levers play such a big role that it can be uh, glute dominant for some. It could be very quad dominant for others. It kind of depends on how you squat. But a hip thrust is almost always, no matter what, it's a glute exercise. You know what I mean? So what about the tension and the extension things like that that well, actually I, make you favor it? I should say that I love exercises in general. That's why I can't understand about this Paulo Gentile. He's always bashing hip thrusts, always bashing, you know, isolation movements and single joint exercise. And it's like, I just love all of exer- all exercises, you know? And so I look at everything like it's a tool. The squat is probably the single most badass exercise there is, you know? Tell me one other exercise where you're so scared to do it, like to one rep max. Yeah, no shit. If it's, <laughs> if it's a deadlift, you're like, I can't get this. I get it, you know, it doesn't leave the ground or yeah. I get a foot off the ground and then I put it back down. Same with a hip thrust. If I don't lock it out, I just rest it down. But the squat, you might be stapled. You might not be coming back up. Kind of worry if you're going to die, you know? <laughs> So there's that fear there. So, um, but the squat is so functional. It works so many muscles. It's great for quads. It's good for glutes. It's great for adductors. But here's the thing. The, the hip thrust leads to greater glute activation because unlike other muscles, where you get peak glute activation is end range hip extension. Like most muscles, it's in a stretch position with the glutes, it's the shortest it can be. So the hip thrust activates more glute muscle. It creates more tension. That's a very complicated way though. To either, like we, the way we figure out tension on the muscle is very, very complicated. Based on modeling data, it looks like the hip thrust creates more tension than the squat. It's way easier to learn. There's not that learning curve. Uh, the hip thrust, it's like, favors most body types in anthropometry where squats really um you know there's some people who just are not good squatters you know, maybe they have a really long relative relatively long femurs or poor ankle mobility or something but um it just you know probably like one in four people are not good squatters um so with the hip thrust there's three points of three three bases of support three points of support with a squat there's two it's more stable it doesn't require as much coordination it's easier to learn and you can do it way more frequently because it doesn't have as big of an eccentric phase you lower it much more rapidly and you don't stretch the muscle to quite as long a muscle lengths but it does i do feel like they move the glutes through a similar range of motion. They move the hips through a similar range of motion. And here's why. People will point out, well, in the squat, you get more range of motion than the, the hip thrust. And that's true. But we're looking at angular, angular range of motion around the hips. Okay. And if you're anteriorly tilted at the bottom of a hip thrust and posteriorly tilted at the top, See, the average person has 20 degrees of hip hyperextension mobility. When you post your pelvic tilt, that's the same thing as hip hyperextension. So when you run out of range of motion, that's an extra 20 that you won't come into. And in a squat, you probably don't even finish in neutral. You're probably still anterior tilted a little bit. That last 20 degrees of a squat is not loaded in tension, though. It's like you already completed the lift. So squat might be active from like, you know, say you have really good hip mobility, maybe 135 to 20 degrees or something. The hip thrust might be loaded from, you know, 100 degrees to 120 degrees or something like that. But some people, sorry, 100 degrees to negative 20 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, but the, here's the thing. The, some people have really, really good hip extension mobility, hip hyperextension mobility. In one study, it shows 40 degrees, but in, an, in, in here at Glute Lab, I tested someone who looked like they had 70 degrees. Like they could just keep going, their leg could just keep going back. Those people are gonna get more, mo- more range of motion from the hip thrust because they have such 
um, they have, you know, they can get the glutes way shorter as they come up. They're not, they're not reaching that zone with the squats. So anyway, but it doesn't create the muscle damage. So you can do it more frequently. So it's like, I wish I could say the, the authors like Barbal and Gentile, how much do you believe this? Okay. I'll bet you a hundred grand or 200 grand or a million dollars. I'll bet you guys a million dollars. We'll do it in a ward. They get they, we track what they get fed. They get similar macros. They get you know similar calories, the same amount of protein. They're going to live in this board. And you can train them as however you want, but you can only use a squat. And I can train them however I want, and I can only use the hip thrust. And let's see which group gets the better glute gains. Because what would your optimal protocol be for squats? If you wanted glute growth, what would it be for skin? You could only squat. What would you do? Like, would you squat three days a week? Definitely not one. <laughs> not one, but you also wouldn't squat six days a week. I don't think you know yeah, no and I, it's it, that's even a hard question to answer because like if anybody ever wants better glutes i'm never just squatting it's just right but that's what doctors <laughs> recommend basically yeah just squat and no one does it that way and that's what's funny is i wish i could go to these guys and go like it doesn't bother you that like same with their volume papers their volume papers all say that five to ten sets is better than 15 to 20 sets per week for Russell group it doesn't bother you that no one actually trains this way so you think everyone is doing it wrong yeah five sets like if you wanted to grow your glutes you get the best results doing five sets a week not 20 sets my girls all do like 30 to 40 sets a week you know yeah and don't do any abduction work don't do any single joint work just compounds just vertical squats you know deadlifts leg press lunges you know i like my rule of thirds which is like a 30 exercise should be horizontal like hip thrusts and back extensions and glute bridges and pull throughs and stuff like that reverse hypers and then a third should be vertical like squats and lunges and deadlifts and stuff like that and then a third should be lateral rotary like abduction movements external rotation movements and that tends to develop all the fibers and it doesn't beat you up so much because the vertical exercise beat you up not only systemically but they also make the glutes the source create the most muscle damage the same as not as true for horizontal and especially lateral exercises so the lateral it's like free volume it's like penalty free volume you know you're not mm -hmm. beat up from it so anyway I, I i think if you were creating the optimal like say you wanted the most glute growth you could get out of just squatting you'd probably squat three days a week and you'd probably do like five sets three days a week five sets of like six to 12 reps you know maybe you do like a daily undulating situation where you mm -hmm. different rep ranges each day okay but if you wanted your glutes to grow the most from hip thrust, I would hip thrust six days a week. I do Monday, Wednesday, Friday heavier with a barbell. I do, I do Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, like knee banded, you know, single leg, like, like, uh, you know, pause rep, high, high super high reps. Um, cause you're not creating much damage. You don't have repair to do so you can just fast forward the process and and if all you did was hip thrust you didn't do anything else you could probably hip thrust six days a week and not get so beat up especially if you alternated like three heavy days with three lighter days and i think you'd get so much more glute growth from that protocol it yeah just be a landslide but again it's, if you want to be a good scientist you need to point out like you know brett's biased he's the inventor of the hip thrust of course he's he's gonna think this i am biased so we need a study to show this so i'm i'm setting forth my prediction but i also think if all these studies had a combined group a combined group that did squats and hip thrusts they'd see the best results yeah i agree you know? i think that it, it's it, it blows my mind because i think if you are an experienced trainer it's almost common sense like you said earlier like have you guys trained people because right 
and, and if, if somebody came to me and they're like, Hey, I really want to hypertrophy my shoulders and arms. And I say, Hey, we're only going to do bent rows in military press. I don't want you doing any lateral raises or curls at all. It's like, why? <laughs> that's the why? point of isolation. Well, that's what the, this Barbalo and Gentile, like they have, you look at their research and it's just so, that's another problem. Not only they're prolific, but they're also always like Brad Shonton and my buddy, we always joke that we're always like, you know, 50% of the time or more, we're wrong about our predictions. And we're always like trying to explain the data like, uh, okay, our mind-muscle connection study, we're like, why did this work for the biceps, but not the quads? Any ideas? How do we explain this? Because you've got to try to, in the discussion for a study, you got to write it up, you know? You got to come up with an explanation. Mm -hmm. In their studies, they've got four papers on volume, all showing that low volume trumps high volume, okay? Like really low volume is better than higher volume, okay? They've got four or five papers on single joint exercises, all showing that basically like all but one of them, but I mean, basically you don't get any more gains adding in single joint movements. And like, what, who trains that way? So it's like, is anyone really going to be like, yeah, I want to grow my delts. I'm just doing military press. What about your rear delts? Yeah. I guess they, they grow from rows, but it's not the same. What about calves? It's like, they, they just want, and they, they, they don't, they didn't measure calves because you know, calves wouldn't have gotten the same growth. Bicep, they'll measure biceps, triceps, quads, and hammies. And you know, whatever they, they do, uh, uh, you know, one group does just compound, the other group adds in single joint and there's no extra growth on the part of the single joint groups. And it's like, but if I had a gun to their head and said, I'm going to, you know, or like I say, I say someone kidnapped their family or offered them a million dollars or something and said, you got to put an inch on your arms in the next two weeks or else, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. or you get this money or we're going to whatever, kill your family or something. Obviously they do arm work, right? Like <laughs> you'd be doing chin-ups and dips and close grip bench, but you'd also be doing curls and tricep extensions. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we all do. So yeah. they're being so hell bent on, on trying to it, go against the grain, trying to tell people you don't need to do volume, just do low volume. You don't need to ever do single joint exercises. You don't ever need to do, um, they have a, they have a few papers on like, um, you know, at, advanced methods. You don't need to do advanced method, met, methods like drop sets and, you know, things like that. Just do like force negatives, things like that. Just do traditional sets. It always comes out. It's all, it's all fits their narrative and says the same thing. You don't need to do hip sets, just squat. And no one actually trains that way. And the people who do this for a living know that you see the best results when you have more variety. Yeah. Like why limit yourself just to the compounds? Um, I think it's, it's, it's more obvious to people who have experience. So I'm glad that you, you went about it that way. One, one of the questions, you kind of answered this in that that explanation but one of the questions i had in here is just like kind of creating the optimal program for building your glutes and, I, and you've kind of explained it like a higher frequency using a horizontal vertical and lateral approach is that what you would recommend people to do yeah i have this rule of thirds i really like it but you know it's a, but then people take it too far this is just a blueprint it, it's meant to be tinkered with because on the one hand i like to switch focuses every month every four weeks like mm. and focus on different lifts which i've never seen anyone do in, in the periodization literature it's always just assumed you focus on like the big three. So that's an aspect to my system. I do this with my Booty by Brett members. It's like every four weeks we have a new program and I switch the focus around in a very strategic manner. Mm -hmm. But this way you put some lifts on maintenance mode, other lifts you're trying to build. Like Cody, how old are you? I'm 27. 27. It's probably at this point pretty hard like how what's the most chin-up reps you've gotten i don't even know if i've done a set unbroken in a long time um 
20 maybe? Yeah. So say you want to beat that. Okay. You're going to need to specialize on chin-ups for a while. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd be like, I'm going to spend this month really hammering out chin-ups. Chin-ups are one exercise that becomes really hard to beat over time, you know? Yeah. Um, You know, and if I was like, you know, what's the most you've ever deadlifted? Like, okay, Cody, I want you to beat that this month. You'd have to really focus on it. And you can't. So that's the one thing about powerlifting I always realized. Like the deadlift complicates everything. If you could just squat and bench, it would be easy. To build it both, but then the deadlift, and you're like, God, if I deadlift too hard, my low back is sore. Now I can't squat as much. It's hard to build three lifts at once, mm-hmm. you know. But with with bodybuilding, there's six good lifts uh, or ten good lifts you want to build. You know, you 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 got the bench, squat, and deadlift, but you also want to build your military press, your chin up, your hip thrust. You know, uh, you want to be doing rows. You want to be doing some single joint movements. So it's hard to really build your strength. So I try to focus on like one upper body and one lower body lift at a time i try to fluctuate my training stress by going week one go at a seven week two at an eight week three at a nine and week four to ten so it's like you kind of get some deloading in there you're not always crushing yourself every week i try to use the rule of thirds there's three components to the rule of thirds the first component is what i mentioned earlier third of your exercise should be horizontal a third vertical and a third lateral and rotary then also a third of your reps should be taken to failure a third one to two reps shy of failure and a third nowhere close to failure maybe five to ten reps shy like your band work your band work you're not really going to failure like i could be like cody do this till you can't do it anymore and you're like i'm burning so bad i gotta stop and at that point i could you know it's okay it's like when you're running pretend you're running and you're like I, you ran like six miles and you're like i'm gonna collapse i'm gonna collapse i can't run anymore and all of a sudden it's like cody there's a tiger behind you look out <laughs> you could bust out in an all-out sprint for like yeah. 10 seconds you weren't yeah. really it's it's called the central governor theory. Your brain is exhausted. It's telling you these things, but you have some juice left. That's kind of how it is with higher reps. You do lateral band walks and you're like, I'm done, but you really could probably get 10 more if you had to. Yeah. So you're really training shy of failure, even though it burns like crazy. But also the band work doesn't create as much muscle damage. So it's like the, the rule of thirds with the exercise vectors. The, okay, if you did 36 sets a week of vertical hip extension exercises, you'd get beat up too much. Mm-hmm. It was all squats, lunges, and deadlifts, you know? But the hip thrusts and glute bridges and back extensions don't take it out of you much. And the band work and the lateral, you know, the lateral exercises don't beat you up that much. Now, also what I mentioned about, you know, effort some to failure some not to failure some not even close and then also i like different loads make sure you're doing some heavy work a third of your reps or sets should be heavy a third of your sets should be moderate and a third high rep so generally the things you're focusing on you can go lower reps because you're trying to build strength then the other lifts moderate and then at the end you throw in some lateral work and it's for high reps this tends to be so say you do 36 sets a week you know 12 12 of the sets are are horizontal 12 are vertical 12 are lateral rotary 12 sets are heavy 12 sets are moderate 12 sets are light 12 sets are to failure 12 sets are not to failure and 12 sets are nowhere close to failure that makes it manageable you can do 36 sets a week that way Mm -hmm. and still see results but if you did 36 sets of vertical exercise all to utter failure it'd be too much yeah that's why i like it on the high end of things but with some caveats but it's definitely not five sets according to these guys these researchers (laughs) i think that one's obvious um man that's perfect i think that's actually super applicable for people to take away and use for their programming so i appreciate that you broke that down well the other thing you mentioned training frequency Mm -hmm. so okay 
Here's where I feel like we talk a lot about biomechanics, we talk a lot about physiology, but we don't talk enough about psychology. Cody, how many days a week do you like to train? Every day, really, but like not balls of the wall. But yeah, I like, I just like doing something. Same, same here. So if I'm like, Cody, I'm your coach, damn it. You're doing, you're doing two full body workouts a week. <laughs> Will you feel, I mean, even if you're like seeing decent results, will you feel no. like you're doing your all? No, not at all. You have to blend this and psychology together. Some people like to lift every day. With those people, I say, are you cool with six days a week? You really need one day off where you just yeah. sit around and do nothing and watch TV and eat and rest and sleep. And But if you want six days a week, I'll give you the compound bro system that I made up. I put that in my book, Glute Lab. It's like the three days are full body where you train heavy compound movements and then the alternating three days, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, heavy compound, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I call them bro days. I was like, Cody, you could go to the gym and just pump up your muscles. Pretend you I was being going to take a photo of you. And I go, <laughs> you got 25 minutes to pump up. Well, what would you do? He'd be hitting lateral raises, yeah. rear delt raises, curls, maybe some push-ups, maybe some rows. You know, you'd be doing them leg extensions, maybe some frog pumps or abduction work to pump up the glutes. It's like, you wouldn't be doing like, you know, heavy deadlifts to failure like mm -hmm. or like low rep deadlifts and you can pump up like that and the next day you aren't crushed you know you know maybe you did some hamstring curls like assuming you've done lying leg curls regularly you don't get so beat up from them you know yeah and so that makes it more manageable and then the people can work out more frequently so what i try and do is you know while i depends on the person's split their training preference that you know you can get awesome results training glutes twice a week and in that case you do more on those days you know you do more and you focus you know more on the big rock movements you can also see decent results training glutes six days a week the thing is if you train glutes six days a week you can't be crushing like six sets of squats or deadlifts or you can't be doing six sets of lunges the next day you'll be so sore you'll 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 slide backwards so you you stick to like more shorter length movements like hip thrusts glute bridges back extensions reverse hypers, frog pumps, abduction work, band work, because band work doesn't even work you in a stretch. Think about it. When you do bands in the stretch position, it's unloaded mostly. And then in the, you know, contracted shortened position, it's maximally loaded. So yeah. they don't create the muscle damage. So, but I like in general, three, three. And I, with that, I like either three different options. Okay. You either have your all three of your days are like well-rounded days where you have one squatting or single leg, like a, basically it looks like a squat pattern. It could be one or two leg, leg. One bridging or thrusting exercise, one hinging like deadlifting movement, and then one abduction movement. And that's your, you do four exercises three times a week, okay? And it, they can change each, each day. That's one option. The second option is uh, you have, you train three days a week. One is like a squat and quad, a squat lunge. And glute day like quad and glutes one is like a hamstring and glutes where you do like deadlifts and back extensions and stuff like that and then the other is like straight up glutes like hip thrust abduction and then the third option of three training three days a week is like two heavy and one band workout and that's what i do with my my glute squat they train with me mondays and thursdays they hit it hard as hell i crush them in here then i tell them on saturday just do a 20 minute banded workout where it's like high reps, nothing to failure. You're not counting reps. You're just trying to get a nice decent pump and get some good activation in there and call it a day. Mm, I love it. I think that's perfect, man. I, it, it's cool hearing some of that stuff because um, I've, I've taken a similar approach, even even with like rotating compound lifts and stuff like that over um, over the years as I've worked with more people. So it's, it's always cool hearing people of your expertise 
have a similar approach and, and it makes me feel good. Obviously. Um, I do want to respect your time. We've been on here for quite a while, but I've been loving this conversation, man. This has been really cool for me. Um, uh, I know you have a few, you have a book, you have a, um, you have a training system that you use and stuff like that. Do you want to shout out? Uh, I know mainly everybody here is probably going to know where to find you on Instagram, but your Instagram, your book, all that stuff, you can shout it out right now. That'd be great. Yeah. It's at Brett Contreras one. Someone else had Brett Contreras before me and he's posted like twice. So anyway, I'm <laughs> at Brett Contreras one. You can type in the glute guy on Instagram and I come up, but, uh, my training system is booty by Brett. Um, and then I have a book called glute lab and then my equipment is BC strength. And that's what I really tried to start moving towards. It's like, I like coming out with good equipment for people and I like testing it with a variety of people, you know, so that I take pride in the fact that, you know, my equipment works for the masses and it's hard to do. And, and also it's, I feel like I don't mark up the equipment like other companies do. I look at some of this equipment. I'm like, why are they selling it for so much? Oh my I'm going to make my own. And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can sell this for 25 bucks and they're selling it for 50, you know, so I'm not, I'm not greedy with these prices there. So yeah, but you can always just type in glute guy on Google and you'll find my stuff. Oh yeah. I think you're the only one with that title. And I know exactly, we just outfitted this facility. So I know exactly what you mean. Some of the stuff is just absurd. Yeah. So man. All right. Well, I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna link all that in the show notes. I appreciate your time today, Brett. Thank you, Cody. Much appreciated. Good questions. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time. 